morning, everyone. Happy Halloween and welcome to the news agenda with me, Fleet Street Fox. And today I'm joined by Britain's longest serving political reporter, Nigel Nelson of the Sunday Mirror and Sunday People. What did you do with the others, Nigel? Did you push them all off a roof? Yeah, I've been, I've been doing that, getting rid of them one by one. <laughs> That's the spirit. Now, this is the People's Paper Review. So get into the comments, ask us your questions. We will do our best to answer them for you. Those of you listening later on podcast will just have to be glad that at least we're not spooking the markets for now. So what have we got for you today? Well, the Mirror has splashed on a report from the front line of the NHS with reporter Holly Bones speaking to staff and patients on a respiratory ward at the Royal Preston Hospital, where they are already under huge pressure with both COVID and winter flu patients. Now, one line in this really jumped out at me, Nigel. She says, two years ago, this unit was overflowing with critically ill COVID patients on life support. Today, only four out of the hospital's 69 COVID patients need to be here. But there are still rows upon rows of unconscious people with tubes down their throats and machines bleeping at their bedside. The senior doctor told her it's horrendous. I think it'll be the worst winter on record for the NHS. Does Westminster know about this, Nigel? And if so, what are they doing to prepare? Because they're not telling us very much about it, are they? No, they're not. And they, they certainly do know about it. Um, and obviously, we've got the perfect storm coming where, where COVID and flu will actually mix now for the first time. Uh, before that, while, while we were sort of in lockdowns and things like that, the, the incidence of flu went down, but they're now going up hugely. And the, the way that they're trying to deal with it is to encourage people to get their flu vaccines. And the uptake on that has not been great. Um, it's been very good for the for the uh, fourth COVID jab, but people don't seem to be going out and getting their, their flu jabs. And really, to actually help protect the NHS, as much as we did during COVID, it's really important to get vaccinated against both. Exactly. And, and if that public health message isn't being pumped out there, then people are going to perhaps not be reminded that even those things are available or that there is a risk. Lots of people say they've had flu. You haven't had flu. Trust me. Uh, now, get into the questions. Ask us your, um, get into the comments, sorry. Ask us your questions. What do you think about the NHS and the upcoming crisis? Have you had to use it recently? How do you think it's coping? Now, we are on to our third health secretary in a year. And Steve Barclay, who it is now, you may not recognise him from a piece of toast, but he's probably still getting briefed from the civil servants about what's still going on. He's only just got his feet under the desk. Therese Coffey, when she was health secretary, not only had to have about three other jobs, but she listed her priorities according to the first four letters of the alphabet. And she never got any further on with her reading because she and her boss, Liz Truss, had to go. And now we've got Nigel, Rishi Sunak and Jeremy Hunt are preparing billions of pounds worth of budget cuts. Now, I read over the weekend that the NHS budget is supposed to be ring fenced. It's the only bit of government spending that is going to be ring fenced, they claim. But that doesn't mean it's going up, does it? And if you've got inflation at 10%, there's no way they're going to have enough money to do what they did this year next year, are they? It's going to no, be a flat in real terms. That's absolutely right. That uh, What it means is that the, the NHS is facing a, a, a cut in real terms. Um, I mean, I, the, the one—I suppose—the one bit of good news is at least they're going to ring fence that. There's an awful lot out there uh, which is not ring fenced, and I think that Tory fortunes could uh, take another huge dip if they don't, for instance, maintain the triple lock on pensions 
as they promised, and also increasing uh, benefit uh, benefits by the rate of inflation. And there's no there's no certainty they're going to do that. Ask a government minister the direct question whether the triple lock is safe, and you get a sort of um ah reply. Ask them whether benefits will go up in line with inflation, which is how the system works. That the um, that the uh, benefits and pensions get assessed every September. So when it came to benefits last September, for instance, that uh, inflation was three point one percent. When the rise came in the following April, inflation was nine percent. So people have already lost out. Um, but that was the formula. That's the way the rules worked. Now they're thinking of, t- uh, of tearing up the rules and saying, oh, well, now we can't afford it because we'd have to raise benefits by 10.1 percent, um, uh, which was the September inflation figure. So things are looking pretty bleak all around to anybody uh, without money who is vulnerable. And so the NHS, if you like, has become another one in the queue to try and get a reasonable amount of money. But as you say, Susie, what's that we are talking about a real terms cut in NHS funding. Yeah, it's got to come from somewhere, hasn't it? Now, Sue says, there's no point talking about the problems of the NHS without addressing the problems with social care. Um, there is a lot of the, the problem that we've got at the moment with ambulances backed up outside A&E, people who can't get out of A&E onto a ward because there isn't a spare bed on the ward because there's people on the wards who can't go home because they haven't had the social care put in place for when they go home is one of the problems the NHS is facing. The funding and the problems they've got with flu and COVID are an entirely different problem that are all being impacted by each other. But we've, we do have a massive issue there with social care. And the, the conservative worry about social care, Nigel, seems to be rich people having to pay for their houses, to, having to sell their houses to pay for it. They're not kind of bothered about the actual aspect of people who need it and who, who can't afford to pay for it. No, I mean, this, this has been something that has, has been going on for years, really, that the successive health secretaries have talked about how uh, health and social care have to be have to be linked up. Um, basically, they have to be one thing. And so the Department of Health now is called the Department of Health and Social Care. What they haven't done is actually do the linking. But you're absolutely right that if you can't get people out of hospital because there's nowhere for them to go, then all that happens is the backlog increases on top of a backlog we've already got because of COVID. So really, they should do something about that. But of course, um, when they did try, I mean, in in fairness to Boris Johnson, he tried to bring in uh, a national insurance uh, rise. Now, initially, that was to pay for NHS funding. But eventually, the idea was that that money would have gone into social care. Now, under Liz Truss, we then lost, uh, lost that. Now, I'm sure everyone likes their taxes to go down. But you've got to work out that somehow all these things have got to be paid for. And we still don't know now that the that, that the uh, national insurance rise has been scrapped. We don't know how they're going to pay for it. And by the look of the uh, the autumn statement that's coming up on November the 17th, there just won't be any money there to actually deal with it. So we've got problems coming around around every single corner. At the end of the day, it means that that hospital wards are full um, and it could be a really, really bleak winter because of that. Yeah. Added to which the fact that someone, if you aren't, 82 pound a week 
universal credit and you're you know you could have had with inflation an extra eight pounds a week um, and that's going to be enough to make you eat less and go out less and suffer a little bit more perhaps more likely to get ill get more ill when you do get ill then those billions actually have a further knock-on effect to the NHS a bit further down the road as well now uh, Maura Dunn says it cannot get any worse. It's the product of the sell off of the NHS since Tony Blair's days, all done slowly and quietly for money. Um, the Tony Blair certainly did, and Gordon Brown uh, preside over a period in which private finance initiatives were used to build an awful lot of hospitals. And that caused a lot of the NHS's uh, later budget problems because they just couldn't afford to pay for some of those private deals they had but Nigel the the whole idea of the the market and the private sector getting involved with the NHS goes back to Maggie doesn't it and Ken Clark yeah because everyone's been trying trying to sort of sort out what you can do about the NHS you, you, that broadly what we're still doing is working on a 1948 model for a 21st century problem and really what you what you actually need to do is bite the bullet and go go for root and branch NHS reform. The problem, I think, is with the system that individual doctors and nurses, certainly in the brushes I've had with the uh, NHS over the last year, have been absolutely brilliant. Um, but the system itself is very creaky and frankly doesn't work. But of course, the other problem is that, that we are, as a nation, terribly sentimental about the NHS. The moment anyone tries to touch it, we all scream and say they shouldn't. Um, now, now, private finance initiatives weren't the answer, but we, are, but we really must look at the fact that the NHS in its present form is not sustainable in the long term. It is a bottomless pit when it comes to money. We've got an aging population, uh, which means that more and more people need care. You get um, constant advances in medical treatment, which are also expensive. So at some point, we're going to have to say, well, look, um, how do we actually design a model that works for the modern age? Mm. There's got to be some, some fix to it. And the reason, of course, people scream and are sentimental about the NHS is because it saves lots of our lives over and over again. You tend to think, well, don't fiddle with that, please, because I'm, I'm more than likely to need it again at some point if I fall under a car or I have another baby or my parents get ill. If we have to start paying for this, as we used to before in NHS, people are just going to die and they're not going to be able to afford it. And so the, the principle of it being free, being accessible and being so wonderful as most of our experiences have been as you just said Nigel that's what people want to maintain it's the it's having the confidence in the politicians perhaps to actually deliver that that's half the problem as Peter says here we need a health secretary who has experience of working in the NHS UK as they know how it works we I can't think of a single NHS or health secretary rather who who has actually come up through the NHS and knows what its problems are they they're politicians who get imposed at the top and try and do things for an ideology one way or the other aren't they Nigel? Well I mean that's the way, that, the way our system works I suppose I mean the idea is that you're meant to have uh, politicians who give the political direction and then the experts beneath them who actually carry it out 
Um, so, I mean, I, I don't think necessarily, for instance, um, uh, you'd have to be, say, a GP to be a great defence secretary. Equally, you don't have to have been a soldier in real life to be a great health secretary. So I think that the, the, the way our system works is it's quite right that a politician is a politician. They don't have to be absolute experts in the field. What they do have to do is be able to grasp the nettle, be able to understand exactly what the problems are that they're facing listen to the experts that they employ who tell them what is going wrong and how to put it right and that's the bit of disconnect it seems to be that they either don't listen or they haven't got the money to go and carry these things out and that is and and that's where there is a fault line in our political system but again it really is a matter of actually someone being brave enough to go out there and say right we have got to do something about this that uh, emergency care is on the whole good provided of course you can get an ambulance but it's not okay post covid that people can't get to see a gp everybody should be able to have a face-to-face -face appointment if they want one if you can do the whole thing online that's great if you can do it by a phone call fine if you if you can do it by, by a video link good but it but it means that people who either are not comfortable with those things or really want to see their gp should be able to and at the moment we can't no there is a bit of a problem there and that's to do with uh as well the recruitment of gps never mind their attention um so tree pets casting probably not uh their genuine name said on twitter i believe this is the tory ruse to ensure the nhs is on its knees then they can sell it off to their cronies and slowly privatize it's despicable how can they do this on the back of covid lots of people tend to say that's the tories idea of doing things the tories do like to claim some ownership of the nhs as well i think they do have the wit to uh see that it's a political win to be able to help say you can help and protect the nhs and all the rest of it the fundamental issue is i think tory and labor as nigel just says they don't really have the idea whatever the idea is to fix it they they seem to come with their own and they're not listening to advice and they're not listening to people within the nhs and they're, they're trying to impose things upon it perhaps to some extent now debbie says we need to start charging for services for those people who came here to live but haven't worked and paid into our NHS system. If we go on holiday, we expect to pay for hospital services. So people coming here should pay too. We're too soft and we're taken advantage of. Debbie, if you go on holiday to Europe, you do not pay for hospital services because your government pays for hospital services uh, in the same way that it pays for the NHS back in England. Um, asylum seekers, uh, generally, if they are allowed to work once they get leave to stay, pay their taxes and have exactly the same rights to use it as everybody else. Unfortunately, the governments we have all voted for in the past few years uh, have decided that asylum seekers have no right to work. If they, when they came here and were having their claim processed, were allowed to work and pay tax, you wouldn't have a, a point to make there, Debbie, because it would have been sorted out. They would be paying taxes and contributing to their upkeep. They're not allowed to do that, which I think is an absolute abomination. Um, they should be allowed to do that. They should be allowed to support themselves and they should be contributing and paying tax. But that is the, the choice of the government that they don't, unfortunately. Yeah. And just, just to add to that, Susie, uh, on Debbie's point there, there is actually an NHS surcharge that if you want to come and live in Britain, and obviously this is, this is for uh, legal migrants, 
students, if you want to come and come and live here and you haven't paid into the NHS, you do have to pay a surcharge to be able to use it, which is absolutely right. Now, it, it won't it, it won't actually uh, pay for pay for all treatment. That if you are an emergency, for instance, you'll still be taken in no matter who you are. But at least the the, the people who haven't contributed are forced to contribute if they want to live here. Exactly. And if you happen to be on holiday or something and your country doesn't have an agreement, the uh, NHS Trust does pursue you for that money. So uh, Gary says, I think most people accept there needs to be savings. I doubt any will find cuts to an already underfunded NHS acceptable. Perhaps they're aiming to save money by killing off the most vulnerable members of society. We, that would be a very cynical and indeed murderous thing to say, Gary. I'm sure the Conservative government aren't doing that. Uh, but what they are doing, or not doing rather, and it's worth pointing this out, is uh, pushing people to take up their flu vaccines and COVID vaccines this year. So um, <clears throat> perhaps we've got something, Nigel, called disease fatigue. People are testing positive for COVID. There's thousands of us getting it every day, but you're much less likely to get seriously ill because of the vaccine and because of the, the latest variant. So the uptake for the COVID booster is, is not as good as it was. And last year, 4 million people got a flu vaccine, but this year it's just 3.4 million. Um, I had flu once years and years and years ago, and it's not a head cold. Everyone seems to think that, they, oh, I've got the flu, I've got to go to bed. If you've got the flu, um, I went to bed for three days and lost three days of my life. I was unconscious and then woke up, oh, good Lord. If you've got the flu, then there's a £50 note on the floor in front of you. You can't pick it up. It's that bad. You've had flu, Nigel. You know it's worth getting the flu vaccine, haven't you? Have you managed to find one? No, not not yet. This, this is this has been my my problem. That um, when I went for my uh, co my fourth COVID jab, uh, they'd run out of flu vaccine in the chemist I went to. Uh, when I went to a chemist down the road on a Wednesday to again get a flu jab, where they had plenty of them, I was told they only jab on a Thursday and a Friday. So um, it, it's it's been a little bit difficult to actually get it. I'm sure that that uh, with a bit of perseverance, I'll be able to find it. And when it comes to the to the COVID jab, I think that one of the most important things is when I talk to uh, virologists about this and during the pandemic, I spent more time talking to virologists than I did to politicians. What they're saying to me is, look, the fourth jab um, is is of marginal benefit, provided you've had the three others and the people who really need to come forward are those who haven't been jabbed at all. And there's still something like one in 10 people who are in that kind of position. If they get COVID and they get flu on top of that, they're going to be really, really ill. Now, the fourth COVID jab, you should get it. It's worth having. Um, but it's not It's not the same ki kind of um, uh, breakthrough as the first three jabs were. So th the message has got to go out that those people who didn't get jabbed first time round do so now. Exactly. If you want to save the NHS, that's the thing to do. Now, I managed to get where I am in West Kent. Actually, last year, you had to queue, had to go on a list and wait weeks for a flu vaccine, never mind the COVID. This year, I got the COVID like that, and I got the flu. I wandered into the chemist and said, is there a list for the, COVID, the flu jab this year? And they said, oh, no, we'll do it in, when you walk in. And I go, all right, when can I do it? And they said, how about right now? And there it was done on the spot. Uh, and the good thing about the COVID booster that I got, because I'm in category six, so I go in, it's only for over 50s, unfortunately, but I get in that category because I've got epilepsy, is that it was the bivalent vaccine. So it protects against Omicron as well. So if you can get the latest Pfizer and you've had the previous jabs, 
you're, you're as safe as you can be. But if, as Nigel says, if you haven't had any, good luck. Good luck this winter, especially with the NHS of the state it's in. Please, if you want it saved, try and get a vaccine if you can. Flu and uh, COVID. Now, we're going to move on to other stuff. Keep asking us your questions. How do you feel about the vaccine? Have you had it? Are you one of the one in 10 who hasn't had it? Can we persuade you otherwise? Let us know. Um, but on pages 10 and 11, not only is the Mirror reporting that almost 2 billion people in the public sector could quit. I'm not sure how that differs to the average day. There is a roundup of revelations from this weekend that not only was Liz Truss's private mobile phone hacked, probably by the Russians, um, but the Home Secretary, Suella Bravman, is facing calls to resign again after it turns out that she didn't cough to a security breach. She's been accused of multiple security breaches. She may have broken the law over processing asylum seekers and may also have assisted on some insider trading with regard to migration figures. Now, Nigel, leaving aside the fact that both of these women are about as dim as a two-watt bulb, why, oh why, oh why, oh why, are government ministers using private mobiles, private email accounts and WhatsApp to conduct government business? Well, they shouldn't be, is the, is the simple answer. Um, I mean, it is a breach of the ministerial code if you use either your private email account uh, or a private phone to conduct business. And that's what Suella Bravenwood was fired for the first time. Um, that, that she used a, a private email account in breach of the ministerial code uh, to, to send a message to an MP which was confidential, another breach. Uh, then six days later, she's brought back by Rishi Sunak because she promised him her support, provided she could be Home Secretary again. He should have been a bit tougher on her not to do that. When it comes to Liz Truss, again, that the private phone, if that was used for government business as, it, as it's alleged, especially when she's talking about the war in Ukraine, possible arms shipments, that should not have happened. And had that come out during the leadership campaign, when it seems to have been first revealed, Liz Truss wouldn't have remained as foreign secretary because she'd have been in breach of the ministerial code. What is astonishing about the, the Liz Truss affair is that is this a matter of just simple politics that we didn't know about it uh, when it was discovered last summer because she was in the middle of that leadership campaign? Or is it a matter of national security, in which case we shouldn't really have known about it at all? I mean, exactly. The fact it's come out in itself is a is a breach of some kind of code, isn't it? But of course, one of the big reasons that uh, politicians start using their private email accounts is because when journalists come along and issue freedom of information requests or campaigns for that matter and say I'd like to see all government communications on this issue or that issue or the ministerial emails about this thing please these these aren't the things that get automatically searched necessarily but there have been lots of FOI cases and appeals where eventually the WhatsApps and the private email accounts Michael Gove used his wife's email account as I recall when he was first in government and there was a huge row about that but eventually they do get found they do get come out so they're, they're trying to use private communications to keep it away from the journalists but in so doing are handing it to the cyber hackers and Russia and people who are much, much worse than journalists, one would have thought. Um, we'll have to see how that one pans out, won't we? Now, Mike says, there are reports that Simon Case protected both Liz Truss and Suella Braverman. 
Simon Case is the Cabinet Secretary, of course. Is he being set up to take the fall for their misdeeds? Is this true, Nigel? Because I saw some stuff about Simon Case, who is the, the top civil servant in the government, actually being furious that Suella was back in when she shouldn't have been. Yes, I mean, all the, all the indications are that uh, he said that, that uh, there's no way she should have been re-employed. He was also the first person to say that when uh, she sent that, that email that she shouldn't have done, that she'd clearly breached the ministerial code and therefore she should be asked to resign. So, so certainly he seems to actually want to keep the rules. That's why I do find the claim odd that he got involved in the Liz Trust phone hack business in the summer and agreed with Boris Johnson that it shouldn't be made public. That, see, that seems a bit peculiar. And also, apart from keeping their, their private communications away from uh, us journalists, they also want to keep them away from their colleagues. That if the reports are true, that one of the things that Liz Truss was talking about was having was slagging off Boris Johnson to her mate Kwasi Kwarteng. So um, I'm sure she didn't want the, want the then Prime Minister to be reading that kind of thing. But even so, that she should she shouldn't be doing this on a private phone. That the one thing that everybody gets when they come into government, and that's from junior civil servants up to the prime minister, is they get a a secure laptop and a secure iPhone, and that's where all communications are meant to be done because that's the way the way to keep the national keep national security safe. Yeah, they should. You'd have thought that when you get the job, you hand in your mobile phone and go well. I'm not going to be gossiping with my mates or having funny emojis with someone for for a bit because this is my job now and it's more important than that. But no, they they keep their they keep their personal friends. So let's see how that all turns out in the long run, shall we? Thank you for that, Nigel. Thank you everyone uh, for your comments and questions. If you've got any more that we want to wrap up with at the end, either on the NHS, your experiences of it, the vaccine, or whether you think Liz Truss and Suella Braverman should be in the Tower of London, do let us know. I'll have a wrap up at the end. But first off, um, we have managed to find some good news in the world. And here it is. Now, despite the multitude of problems facing the NHS, it is still doing what it does brilliantly. So I wanted to bring you this morning the story of Isaiah Homar and his mother, Bethany. There they are. She had a normal pregnancy, but just over halfway through, um, she suffered a placental abruption. She started getting cramps and was bleeding as the placenta separated from her body a bit early. And she was told she had to decide between getting him out, giving him a chance, but he might not make it, or leave him inside to die while they stopped her bleeding. She gave her son his chance, and although he was born weighing less than two pounds and his heart stopped beating for 17 minutes, he's finally been allowed home after 112 days of unstinting care in an NHS special care baby unit. Now, he has chronic lung disease, he's on oxygen, but he is at least back where he belongs. Now, Nigel, I suppose this shows that no matter how crocked or desperate a situation might seem, there is always a chance, isn't there? You can still pull through, especially if you've got the NHS, give you a hand. Yeah, and this is, I think, think what I mean about when it comes down to critical care, when it comes down to emergency care, that doctors and nurses are brilliant. And, you know, this great story about little Isaiah is absolutely a case in point. Obviously that it was touch and go all the way through whether he was going to make it. Uh, he did, and 112 later, days later, as you just said, Susie, he's back at home. 
system. And that's why the NHS is really so important. And we can't let it let it wither away, which is what this government seems to be doing. Yeah, they don't seem determined to save it, do they? They just, they sort of, it's like looking at a car accident, I suppose, right? And you've got there's some people that will look at it and go, oh gosh, that's awful. Uh, don't know what to do about it. And there's some people who'll get stuck in and go, right, we need to pull that person out of the wreckage. We need to stop the bleeding over there. We need to do this. And then we need to make cars safer and make this road safer and, you know, take a step back. That's what problems you've got with the NHS. There's something going wrong and you either stand there and stare at it or you fix it. Now, Jim says, if they're using their private, this is back to politicians. If the politicians are using their private phones and email accounts, do we buy them the newest phones available? Uh, we do, Jim. I think they get the latest iPhone, don't they? Is iPhone, what, 76 we're on now, Nigel? Whatever, whatever the, the, the cybersecurity centre actually says they should have. Yeah. Um, but these are meant to be secure. Now, um, uh, even Boris Johnson, if you remember, didn't actually use his official phone. He preferred to use his private one, and he got hacked, uh, largely because his number was pretty well known. I've got it in my contacts book, and you can find it on the internet. Uh, but he, he couldn't use an iPhone, so he wanted to use his old-fashioned Nokia. Now, again, that is not acceptable. You are talking about major issues of national security, especially with your prime minister or foreign secretary. And what you've got to do is is use the devices you, you, you're given. Now, nothing is actually hack proof. But obviously, that the, the, if you get the latest device supplied to you free by the government, that's the kind of thing you should be using for your day to day work. Yes, multiple ministers, of course, have managed to drop, lose, eat, throw them in the river and then have to get new ones, uh, give them to their wives, things like that. So some of them love it and some of them less love it. Uh, but interestingly, some things are hack proof. Which, you know, Vladimir Putin doesn't have a mobile phone. Jimmy Savile didn't have a mobile phone. Uh, Vladimir Putin's actually got like proper old, you know, when you see him on those uh, rants to, to, to the TV cameras, he's got one of those old like, you know, binatone things and he's got fax machines because these things can't be hacked in the same way because they don't have a sort of a digital footprint analog is perhaps the way to go perhaps the digital security center should be sending ministers old nokias one of those ones that just played snake and nothing else you can't you can't possibly be sex texting anybody that would be a good idea perhaps in some cases now mike says think of how many selfies of liz trust the russians had to wade through on her phone before they got to anything interesting she does like a nice selfie it's got to be said now before i let you go nigel we started off this broadcast saying that you had thrown uh, jokingly saying you've thrown all your rivals uh, as political editors off a roof at some point. Can I just ask whether what's hanging up behind you is their press cards and you've got them as trophies? Because <laughs> I've been looking at it for the last half hour going, is that Nigel's press cards? Or is it... No, they, they belong to me. Um, they're kind of my campaign medals from uh, uh, which are the passes from endless party conferences I've had to go to. And I can tell you after 36 years of doing it, the novelty has worn off. <laughs> yeah, well, I still I still like to think of them as your trophies, Nigel. Let's let's leave it there and let's let's hope that's what they they aren't, I suppose. Um, right. Thank you very much for joining us, Nigel. Thank you, everyone, for taking part. If you're listening on podcast, please leave us a review so other people can find us. And we'll see you all again on Wednesday, uh, if we're spared, for another edition of the News Agenda. Tati bye. Everybody.